Well, good evening, church, and welcome to Soul Food, the things you need to know about your Bible. And we've been studying Isaiah 66, 1 to 4, the one who trembles at God's word. We've been doing this for four or five weeks. I'm not going to read the whole text again, but we've been focusing specifically on the words of verse 2, where it says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So in the midst of, if you read that text, of all the idolatry and all of the ignoring of God, uh, the turning to their own ways, God pronounces judgment on that. And then he says, here's, here's the one I'm looking for. This is what's important to me. I want to see at least one with a heart that trembles at my word. So this is our last study of this text. And it, it seems to me the, the landing point, the important point is, we've seen how important this kind of heart is. We've studied that in depth. The question is, is it a possibility? Where does one get a heart that trembles at God's word? Now what we did is we looked at Josiah last Sunday night. Josiah, and his response when the word is found as they're cleaning the temple. His father, Ammon, was a godless king. Josiah has no religious background, nothing that would kind of incline his heart naturally toward the Lord. He's young. He's a teenager when he comes to the throne. And while they're cleaning up the temple, they find this book of the law. They bring it to Josiah. He reads it. He weeps that they've broken God's law. Now we make application. We have a lot of advantages over Josiah. We've seen Jesus come in the flesh, live a sinless life, die on the cross, raise, ascend. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. What steps can we take to have a trembling heart before God's word? It's not magic for sure. But I think of five basic things. This is how we're going to wrap up. Five steps to having a trembling heart before God's word. So buckle up. Here we go. One, expose your heart to the means through which the Holy Spirit will work. That just makes sense. The whole message of the Old Testament prophets was that only the Spirit can take away the heart of stone and replace it with a tender heart of flesh. Tell yourself that. Only the Holy Spirit can keep your heart tender before the Lord. A trembling heart. I don't mean it takes the Holy Spirit to make you just more emotional about your response to things. I mean, the world can stir up our feelings easy enough. We read novels we watch upbeat movies. Those are emotional reactions shared by everybody. They're manifested by Christians and non-Christians. What I mean is, only the Holy Spirit can make your heart sensitive to God. Only the Holy Spirit can make God matter. You can't make yourself as engaged toward God as you are naturally inclined toward earthly things. You can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can make you and me as inwardly awake to God, more so than we are to earthly things. Okay, so where does that leave me? 
Only the Holy Spirit can do this. Do I just, do I just cross my fingers and hope? No, no. True, I can't do the inward spiritual work, but I am still involved in responding to God's grace. And I need to, you need to, put ourselves into situations where, at least to the best of our ability, we're, we're diminishing earthly distractions to the Spirit's inward reforming of my thoughts and affections. I can't do the inward work, but I can open up the door of my heart as widely as possible. I think there's a big misunderstanding around one point. There are so many ordinary things I do in my spiritual walk. You do them too. I pray. I sing with the saints. Study the scriptures. I give. I serve. I go to church. Okay? You probably do most of those things too. But here's the point. I don't do, especially at first, I don't do any of those things because I feel inclined to do them. I do those things so I will grow in my inclination to do them. A lot of Christians don't seem to get that. You you don't wait till you feel like studying your Bible to study your Bible. You study your Bible so you will learn to enjoy studying your Bible. You don't wait till you feel inclined to you know, when, when this pandemic is over, you don't wait until you feel inclined to come to church. You go to church so the inclination will grow to go to church. To expect to have the feeling first is to try to do the Holy Spirit's work for him. These things are his means, his tools for softening and plowing up my heart. That's how he replaces old affections with new affections. My discipline is required there. Step two, take more seriously the warnings and judgments of God's word. I know this isn't trendy anymore. The old Puritan Richard Sibes once wrote, faith constantly sets the day of judgment before the believer's eyes. This helps him to live in the fear of the Lord. Well, Pastor Don, that's just old stuff. I don't, I don't believe in all this talk about wrath and judgment. I know it's a little Puritan. It's kind of gloomy. I just don't want to live like that. I want just grace and positive spirituality. Now, if, if those are your thoughts, you need, just like Josiah that we studied last Sunday night, you need to blow the dust off of big chunks of your Bible and read it. Read it out loud so you hear yourself saying the words. Here's just a handful. 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He's writing to Timothy, a pastor, a Christian. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy, think about coming judgment, standing before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul writes about his own ministry and his partners. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So please take note. Paul isn't just motivated in his ministry by love for these people. He's motivated by the 
fear of the Lord, so he says. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be dissolved. Okay, now he's, Peter's writing to Christians, devout Christians. What's the first thing he's talking about? That day when all of these things are going to be dissolved, when Jesus comes again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So here's Peter trying to encourage Christians to live holy lives. And one of the things, at least, that he talks about is the day when everything's going to be dissolved, when Jesus comes again, the judgment. Now, our blindly tolerant culture has made it easier for many Christians just to become increasingly blind to the loving work of grace poured into our souls by remembering God's judgment and wrath. And my point is, you will never be more in line with the Scriptures than when you place your life right now at the second coming of Jesus. So take those things to heart. Think about them a lot if you want a heart that trembles at God's word. Three, take heed against sinning against conscience. I mean, all sin is serious. All sin matters. But, but sins against conscience, they do more than just stain my record before God. Sins against conscience, they, they darken my understanding. They diminish the possibility of godly affections growing in my heart. So, so in, in a way, a small sin that's committed against conscience is more damaging than a grosser sin committed in ignorance. We're, we're so prone to justify what we consider to be small, isolated sins. You've heard it a million times. Whenever you start talking about judgment, you get some wise guy. I'm not going to go to hell, really. God's going to send me to hell just for committing one little sin. And the problem is there's, there's no good answer to a dumb question. Over 400 years ago, Thomas Brooks wrote these words, and they're the best answer to that question that I've ever read. Listen to these words. Small sins make way for greater ones. We do not have the power to keep off sin as we please. Listen, by yielding to the lesser, we give opportunity for Satan to tempt us to the greater. So sometimes, get this, the lighter the temptation, the more dangerous the sin. For the love of one sin, some have lost God and their souls forever. This is because many times small sins are the more dangerous. Listen to this. Great sins tend to startle the soul and many times awaken repentance. But little ones breed and work secretly until they trample the conscience and the soul. Sin always grows by degrees 
until you cannot prevail over it. Will God send someone to hell just for one little sin? Brooks says people can end up in hell starting with one little sin. Those are brilliant, brilliant words. Study those words. Brooks tells well of sinning against conscience. That's why the New Testament summons us to make one of our main goals not to uh, foul up the work of conscience in any of our actions. Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. I take pains. 1 Timothy 1, 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy 3, 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 1 Peter 3.16, do it with gentleness and respect, giving a reason for your hope. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered by those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Now, if you're keeping track through those references, you would have noticed that faith, holiness, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, all those three things are dependent upon a clean conscience before God. It's not that life has to be perfect. None of us is going to get there quite yet, but we should all be aiming to not act against conscience. Those are the blessings, the blessings of a clean conscience. I'm, I'm not knowingly pretending with myself spiritually. That's the point. A clean conscience brings something even deeper than just moral purity. It keeps your heart soft and safe before God. That's what we mean, a heart that trembles at God's word. Okay, four. Keep your heart tender by avoiding all sexual sin. I'm not sure I can prove from Scripture that some sins are more damning than others. I mean, which sins aren't worthy of God's judgment? But I think you can make a case that some sins are more damaging than others. But thinking about David, King David, the man after God's own heart, a couple times in his life where we get to see him in his, at his worst. He sinned in numbering the people. Remember, that's, that's when he repented and asked judgment from God rather than man. And he just, he comes so quickly just to beg for God's mercy. And that's what marked him as a man after God's own heart. He was never perfect, but he was, he was always so quick to feel the pain of his own sin. He couldn't bear the weight of it until he sinned with Bathsheba. And all of a sudden you see a different side, a different story. That came very close to being the end for David. I mean, he felt guilty about what he had done, but he never did come clean on his own. Nathan has to come and put David's sin in another person. He tells him this parable, and David gets mad at the wicked person in Nathan's story, and then Nathan says, well, that's you, David. You did this. There's a particular power in sexual sin to pull a person into darkness, to, to lead into more deception, self-deception, deceiving others, dishonesty, secrecy. 
Sexual sins, perhaps more than any other, they keep, they keep us from walking in the light, like we're studying Sunday mornings in 1 John. Remember those words of, of John, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But cleansing stops when you persist and hide in your sin. You remove yourself from grace. Sexual sins are very damaging. Five, to keep your heart tender, keep yourself in fellowship with the body of Christ. This will be, this will be hard. I was, I was looking at an article in the Post when the pandemic's over, and the writer said, will the faithful come back to church? I was thinking about Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day. He's talking about meeting together. COVID aside, these are not good days for calling people to make a serious commitment to the local church. There are just all sorts of trendy voices out there teaching that you can be devout in your commitment to Jesus, but you don't have to worry too much about organized religion. I mean, after all, that's just Constantine and all that organized church stuff. Don't worry about that. Just follow Jesus. See, that's what makes these verses in Hebrews so important. Just, just how do I keep my heart tender before the Lord? Or, or to frame it in the language of the text from Hebrews, how can I avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, 3.13? And the writer shocks us by saying, I can't do that by myself. Some outside help, some community attachment to a local church is always going to be needed. The text makes, says sin makes inroads into my life by deceitfulness. The deceitfulness of sin, 3.13. That's what it does. It deceives us. Well, don't worry, Pastor Don. If I think I'm being deceived by sin, I'll make sure and I'll take care of that right away. Well, no, no, you won't. See, because you'll be deceived. That's the point. If you're deceived... Not only will you not take care of it, you won't even know about it. That's what deceived means. You'll be totally unaware of the whole process. It's, it's an enormous blunder to ever reach a point in your spiritual development where you just trust yourself to stay holiness on your own, to stay holy on your own. So the writer says, to avoid the encroachment of sin's deceitfulness on my heart, I need input from the rest of the body in Christ's local church, apparently on a regular basis. Daily is what's, what's referred to in 3.13. You see, there's really only five points we looked at, but the five points all come down to the same thrust, the same direction. They're aiming at the same thing. Here's the goal. The goal is keeping my heart sensitive to God. That's what we have to do. The worst thing about normal daily living is the way it makes us insensitive to God. You don't have to work at millions of things, 
But you do have to give attention to this one thing. Keep your heart sensitive to God. So let me close with a deep story that I hope you'll remember. There was an elderly lady who wanted to finally branch out after all her children had left home. Her husband had passed away, and she wanted to buy a pet. She wanted company. She went to the pet store, and in the corner was a large cage with a magnificent-looking bird. And the bird talked. She couldn't believe it. The bird would answer questions. The bird could speak several languages. The bird could sing. Well, the bird was very expensive, but it seemed to be just what this lady needed, so she bought the bird. She took the bird home. As soon as she brought the bird home, she did everything in her power to make the bird happy, but this big yellow creature, he seemed miserable right off the bat. Day by day, she went back to the pet store where the bird had once looked so happy, and she bought little treats for the bird. Nothing was spared, little swings, little bells, tiny little piano, and the bird could play songs, a little set of stairs for exercise, a mirror. Nothing worked. Miserable bird never said anything. Got weaker and weaker. One sad morning, she moped into the pet store. The owner could tell right away she was devastated, and she complained to the owner that nothing seemed to make the bird happy, and now he was dead. She had provided everything the bird could ever want to be happy. Well, I don't understand it, the pet owner said. This has never happened before. Especially, especially such an extravagant breed. Did, did, did you have any indication? Did the bird say anything before he died? Yes, yes, the lady said. The last thing he said to me was, Don't they sell any bird food in that store? The point is, you don't have to do everything right to know God, but you do have to have the essentials right. And for centuries, for centuries, the saints of the ages have found these scriptural principles effective for keeping a pure, tender heart before the Lord. Regularly expose your soul to the things of the Spirit. Take to heart more seriously the warnings and the judgments of God. Avoid any sin against the clear light of conscience. Avoid sexual immorality. Stay attached and accountable to a local church. This is the one to whom I will look. One is tender, contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. We'll keep going on this subject Sunday nights. Stay with us. Let's pray. Where would we be without your word and the truth of it? I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll just help our church just to, uh, to grow in treasuring, cherishing, studying, obeying your word. Give us hearts that are tender in responding to it, listening to your Holy Spirit. Make us all teachable, correctable, repentant. Thank you for your great grace. We ask for your keeping care during these difficult times. 
Keep our hearts close to you, close to one another. And bless our prayer time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Love one another. Join us for our prayer time.